Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. I'm reading from the New International Version. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. There are three areas we need to discuss in this passage of Scripture that gets really at the heart of who Jesus claims to be, what his ministry intends to be, who we are, and what God's claims on us might be. We're going to deal first with the question of power, and that's really the question that initiates this whole thing. They ask Jesus where his authority comes from, and that's a question of right or power. So we'll start with the question of power. Then we'll look at the response Jesus gives in terms of this parable, because even though Jesus says he's not going to tell them, the parable more or less does tell them what they're asking. And then finally, we're going to talk about what it means to be a superintendent of God's vineyard and what it means, what our responsibility as superintendents is meant to say. So we're going to start today with the question of power. Look at verse 27 or 28. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you authority to do this? Now, this question has been asked of Jesus many times in the Gospel of Mark. If you've been with us throughout this series, you probably can remember the incidences in which Jesus had to deal with his authority. When he refused to force his disciples to follow the rules the Pharisees had laid down for the keeping of the Sabbath, he let them pluck grain on the Sabbath, they had to ask him by what authority he could do that. And it was in that context he called himself Lord of the Sabbath. You remember that. When he was healing sins, I mean, when he was healing uh, illnesses and things on the Sabbath, they wanted to know where his authority came from for that. When he was forgiving people's sins, they wanted to know why he had the authority to forgive sins. He's been asked about his authority all through the gospel. But this is somewhat different. Those were all disputable matters. 
matters in which reasonable Jewish people disagreed. What does it mean to do work on the Sabbath? What is our responsibility to someone who's in need and they come to us on the Sabbath? What does it mean when somebody's crippled? Is healing them forgiving their sins? These were all debates that the average people had. And so they asked Jesus about this, but it's a different kind of question than this one. Because if we remember the context here, Jesus has just gone into the temple in the previous verses, and he's pronounced judgment on the very worship of Israel by saying, my father's house was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, and instead you've made it a den of robbers. Now that is a huge thing to have done in the heart of the people of Israel. It's not like they had a, they might have had synagogues in each community, but this was the temple. Jesus suggests that the source of his authority is the same source that was the source of John's ministry. Of course, the leaders of the Jewish people, like leaders in every generation and every time, are good politicians. And they don't like answering a question if they don't know which way the wind blows. And so they don't want to get engaged. The question here seems to have to do with the authority to lead God's people. The law was given to Israel. So doesn't that suggest that the community of Israel was entrusted with its safekeeping, with its interpretation, with its implementation? Doesn't it stand to reason that the Jewish authorities were right to think that it was up to them to try and decide how to interpret the law that was given to their ancestors? Shouldn't that be a community discussion? You can't just have one person standing up saying, I know how this should be read. Who cares what any of the rest of you think? The question of the priests, teachers, and elders of Israel, it's not so much about Jesus' right to participate in the conversation. He certainly has a right to talk about how he feels about what's happening in the temple, to talk about how he feels about Sabbath regulations, to talk about how he feels about the way the law is being applied in his context. He certainly has a right to participate in the conversation. They're not questioning that. What they're questioning is the audacity of his practice of going it alone of speaking on his own authority. He refused to be part of the process. He was unilaterally deciding things without respect to or conversation with the other leaders in his culture. And this incident in the temple is a prime example of this uncooperativeness on the part of Jesus. He seems to think he doesn't need to discuss anything with anybody. By what authority do you do these things? And I think they understood when Jesus made that comment about John the Baptist, I think they understood that he was claiming to act on God's authority. But lots of people have said that before. But it's this parable that he told them next that really motivates them to want to eliminate him. A man planted a vineyard, it begins. Now this parable is ingeniously and antagonistically told. Now there was an issue of great debate in Jesus' day, and there was a lot of frustration from the average Jewish person about it, and it had to do with absentee landlords. The Jewish people were intolerably frustrated. This was particularly true in the Jordan River Valley. But these people who are wealthy, they go down and buy land because they have the money, and then they make other people work it, and then they profit off of it. 
drove the Jewish people crazy. It was a matter of huge debate for about 300 years before Jesus, leading right up into his time. And Jesus tells a parable in which what's going to be clear is that he and God are going to identify with the absentee landlord. They're going to be the owners, which everybody hated. So it's a very interesting way for Jesus to tell the story. You and I are often uh, led to believe that Jesus always sided with the meek and the weak and the powerless and the disenfranchised and the poor, that that was the people he always identified with. But it's interesting to me that Jesus does not always identify with the weak and the poor and the helpless. Matter of fact, this is a parable in which Jesus is going to cast God and himself in the role of the landowner, the one who owns it but does not work the land. But secondly, the parable is ingeniously told. The parable brings up this controversial issue, and yet it begins to explain the shape of all of creation of Israel in particular, and of the world in general. There is a, uh, a conflict coming in the gospel according to Mark that this parable will speak into. And it's not just the Jewish people who are going to kill Jesus. I mean, they condemn him for, as a blasphemer, and they try to turn him over to the authorities. But we're going to watch all these groups come together. It's not just going to be the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as it has been. The, the chief priests are going to join this. The elders of Israel are going to join this. Then the Herodians, a group of people who supported King Herod, are going to join this. And Herod's not a Jewish person. He's a descendant of Esau. He's an Edomite, but he represents the Romans. But he's kind of in between. The Herodians are going to come in. And then the Romans are going to come in. And it's actually a conspiracy of all the major powers of the ancient world, Jews and Gentiles, that will come together to kill Jesus. We have to remember that, because this story is all about that. Let's look at the details. First, we're told that this person came and planted a vineyard. Now, for the nation of Israel, we're meant to understand this vineyard as Israel itself. In Isaiah chapter 5, there's a prophecy against the nation of Israel in which God says this very same thing, that God came and planted a vineyard, and it was Israel. And in that context, he judges them because they're not producing good fruit. That's Isaiah 5. So when we hear that this man planted a vineyard, this is long history in the people of Israel to understand that Israel is a vineyard and that God is the one who plants it. So that's for Israel. But we're also told in the creation of the world that God planted a garden in Eden, and that the nations of the earth fell on the people of Adam and Eve when they disobeyed him in that garden. So even though we are meant to understand that God planted Israel, there's also that secondary outer application that God planted the world. A man planted a vineyard. And then he hired farmers to work it. Now in the nation of Israel, we're talking about probably priests and kings and Jewish elders and other leaders who are tasked with taking care of the vineyard, working it. But when we think about that wider application, we remember in Genesis chapter 1 that God said, let us make a being in our own image, in our own likeness. And so he created humanity in his likeness. And he said, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over it. Humanity itself was created to care for God, God's vineyard. So he hired farmers. And then it's, we're told that God, this landowner sent servants 
to go and collect the duty that was owe him because he owned the land and he had set up the vineyard. These are the people everybody hated in the ancient world because these farmers had to do all the work. They did all the labor. They grew everything and then they had to give money to this person who wasn't here, who didn't work with them. And so the servants are hated. What, do we, what were they called in Jesus' day? Tax collectors. We're told that the owner sent servants. We're meant to understand in Israel that those servants were the prophets sent to collect what was due the landowner. For the rest of us, Gentiles, that wider application has to do with angels and Israel herself. But we read the, God, the book of Genesis carefully in the rest of the First Testament. God often sends his messengers, his angels, to go and speak to the non-Jewish nations. We see that in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it in other places. And so God has sent messengers to the non-Jewish nations. Angels and Israel herself is meant to be a messenger to the non-Jewish nations. In fact, there are some Israelite prophets who were sent specifically to non-Jewish people. Jonah sent to the people of Nineveh. Obadiah sent to the people of Edom. And we could go on. So this landowner sends servants to collect a duty tax. But the people working the land didn't quite appreciate that, and so they beat them, and they sent them away. And then one of them, they even hit on the head. This is probably John the Baptist, right? Because they beheaded him, you remember, earlier in the Gospel of Mark. Finally, he had nobody left except a son who he loved. And this son is the heir. For the people of Israel, he's the heir of the throne of David. For the rest of us Gentiles, he is the heir of all of creation. And they kill him. Jesus suggests that his authority comes from the one who planted the vineyard itself and not from those who have been working it. And that's really the distinction Jesus is drawing. You see, the Jewish chief priests and elders and teachers of the law, they are the farmers hired to take care of the land. But they don't have authority. Theirs is derived from their positions. But then in verse 7, we're told that the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill it, and the inheritance will be ours. This is the question of superintendence of what it means to care for somebody else's property. Why did the tenants kill the heir? This is the essential question, because Jesus is implying that this is why he himself will be killed. Why did the tenants kill the heir? Why did the Jewish leaders, the Herodians and the Romans, come together to kill Jesus? Why did all these nations that could hardly agree about anything since the Tower of Babel all agree that Jesus needed to be dead? Why do we still wish to silence the planter of this vineyard today? Jesus suggests that the tenants wish to have sole possession of the vineyard. They wish to own and control the land that they worked. And they did not want to have to pay a tax to a Lord who was not working with them. Now, I just want you to think about 
the indictment that the New Testament makes on humanity in these terms. If we are these caretakers who are here to care for a world that God created, we didn't create it, and we refuse to give him thanks, to pay the tax, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being in birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Why is Jesus suggesting that we want him dead? Jesus is suggesting that in reality we believe we have a right to this world, as Israel had a right to the law, and we don't want to be imposed upon. We don't want strings attached. We don't want to be indebted. We don't want to owe tribute. Have you ever received a gift at Christmas time that you would have rather not received? In some way, for some people in this world, this is the kind of gift life is. It's this unasked for imposition. I didn't ask to be born. Some of us were there at the district training day with Reggie McNeil, and he said this great comment off the cuff, and I've, I think maybe I've repeated it here several times, certainly in conversations with people. He said, none of us asked to be born, we just woke up screaming. <laughs> For some folks, life is that kind of an imposition. God gives us things we didn't ask for. He forces us to labor on them and to struggle with them. And then he asks us for thanks. For some folks, that is an intolerable reality. This is the claim against God made by the Israelites over and over again. You remember when they were, slavery, when they were slaves in Egypt and God delivered them out. They were crying for help. We're told that in the story. They wanted help. Over and over again, Israel asked, why did you deliver us from slavery just to deliver us here? Could you just send us back? We would rather you didn't get involved. And over and over again, you and I have said it too. If this is the cost of following you. What Jesus begins to reveal through this parable, and the Pharisees didn't want to hear it, the teachers of the law didn't want to hear it, the chief priests didn't want to hear it, and eventually the people didn't want to hear it, is that we are what he has made us. Without him, we're nothing. There is no vineyard without God. There is no humanity without God. There is no earth without God. There are no heavens without God. We didn't ask for life. We didn't ask for the responsibility to tend it. We just woke up screaming. 
But here it is. But simply because we didn't ask for it doesn't mean that it does not come with strings attached. In many ways, this is why we are here. To decide whether or not we want what he has offered. To refuse the claims that God would make on us, the caretakers he has created to tend his vineyard, is to murder Jesus. There is only one way to eliminate the duty we owe the landowner. We must wipe out his claim. We must wipe out his claim. We must find a way for this earth to be ours and for us to owe nobody anything. And there's only one way to do it. We must kill the heir. And this day, this attempt is still being made. The world has been trying to kill God from the beginning. And they succeeded on the cross. Praise be to God that they could not keep him dead. There is a world of folks who are working and laboring very hard among God's vineyard to make sure that the knowledge of God is suppressed, to make sure that the claims of God on us are denied, to make sure that the knowledge of the Holy One is lost, and anything he would ask of us is erased from time and history. This is the human wish, some of us, that there is no God, so that we owe nobody anything. But not all have resented God's creation. Not all have felt life was an imposition forced upon us that we now have to labor under and we're not very thankful for it. Not all of us have refused to give him thanks. From Abel, to Noah, to Moses, to Samuel, to David, to the prophets, to the apostles, there are those who have been grateful for the imposition of life God has imposed upon us, who have been thankful to exist, who have wanted to hold on to it, who have not wanted to see it taken away, who've wanted to embrace it and keep it. And today, a remnant of the thankful continue to live. Those who live lives of thankfulness to the owner of this vineyard, who do not see the tax that he's placed on us as some sort of a burden, but we're grateful to live to be able to pay it. those who live lives of thankfulness to God, gladly paying the tribute owed him for the world and the life he has provided. These are those who follow Jesus. Those who are thankful to have been created. Those, no matter how difficult or challenging life may be, would not wish to be nothing again. Those who follow Jesus are those who live lives of thanksgiving to God. And all he asks of us is that we love him with all that we are 
And we show that love by the way in which we treat the world in which we live as stewards of this vineyard and the other people who are in it, loving our neighbors as ourselves. That we forgive those who harm us, that we are patient and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love as our God is. That we pursue the kind of character and kind of life that is real life, God's life, the only life. And if we show and we demonstrate in this place that that's the world we want, he promises that he will make what is temporary now permanent. We're here in many ways to make that decision. In many ways, this world is a temporary place in which humanity must choose whether or not it wants to live. This world is between the worlds. The first world is the nothingness from whence all life has come. The other world is what's called the new heaven and the new earth, where life will never end. We are somewhere in between, in this temporary place, to make a choice. We are here to choose whether or not we want to live. And Jesus begins to help us to understand that he created this vineyard and he requires this tax as a test, as a choice. Do you want to live or do you not? Life comes with strings attached. And those of us who follow Jesus want to live. And this commitment to life is in the end a commitment to follow Jesus into the only life that's real life. This world is temporary. To choose life is to choose people over principles. To choose forgiveness over hate. To choose holiness and self-sacrifice over pleasure if that's what we have to do to be like Jesus. What, light, what choice are you making today?